You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good deal. Well, I am so happy that I get to spend this morning with you as we continue our trek through the Beatitudes. And so we are in week six of this series. And, and as we've done every single week so far, uh, let's read through this section of scripture before uh, we dive in and refresh ourselves a little bit on it. So this is Matthew chapter five, verses one through 12. And he opened his mouth and he, sa- and he said to them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you today. Um, God, you are good. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for knowing us better than we could ever know ourselves. And for your loving instruction and correction that you give us through your scripture and through your spirit. Let us be people who are awake to your presence. People who have eyes to see and ears to hear. God, we love you so much. Amen. All right, so the first thing that I want to do is, is kind of take a step back, and, and we're going to take a, a thousand-foot view of the Beatitudes as a whole and kind of look at some of the themes, some of the, the major features of it that we really want to highlight. And so uh, listen up to this next one, because what I'm going to say is simple, but it is, despite its simplicity, we get mixed up about it all the time. And this is something that we must understand as we, as we dig into the scripture. And so the Beatitudes, they do not describe the process by which a person becomes a Christian. They do describe what the maturing faith process of a Christian looks like. I'll say that again. They do not describe the way by which you become a Christian. They do describe what the maturing faith process of a Christian looks like. So I came, I came across this analogy through my preparations this last week, and, and I thought it was really, really helpful for, for me to understand it, and so I, I hope that it's as helpful for you as it was for me. Um, think about this in terms of identifying any type of animal. Every, every animal, species, whatever it is, has defining features. 
defining marks, um, but it is not those features or, or marks or structures that make that animal what it is, right? No, there's something on, on a deeper level. Let's take the cardinal, for instance, the bird, the cardinal. Uh, it, is, it, it has a distinctive red color, right? But the red color does not make it a cardinal, right? The bird is red because it's a cardinal. Its nature determines its color, and so its color in turn reflects its nature. Painting red dye on a blackbird does not make it a cardinal, right? <laughs> this distinction is really important to understand and, and rightly practice the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and so a Christian is known by its distinguishing marks set out by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 12. But these marks are evidence of a new life in Christ. They are not its cause or the process by which it attains it. Salvation through faith in Christ is what gives us new life. You cannot work your way towards God's love. It is out of his great love and is by grace through faith in him that salvation is given. Okay, now that we're all together on that, I have one more feature that I kind of want to highlight and remind us of, uh, and that is that the Beatitudes build upon one another. You see, the first three Beatitudes deal with an inner posture of our heart and our mind, and, and how we see ourselves before God. That is, to be poor in spirit, to mourn over our sin, and to be meek. And, and these, these three things are, are what Pastor Steve kind of uh, described in those first few weeks of this series as roots. And, uh, and so these roots, as they develop and dig into the soles of our heart, they produce shoots in the form of the fourth beatitude, which is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And those shoots of hunger and thirst for righteousness produce fruit in the form of mercy, purity of heart, and peace. And then, what, then when that fruit is seen within a broken and fallen world, those who carry it will most certainly face persecution for the sake of that righteousness. Jesus told his, his first disciples, after all, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. And I tell you, the way that our God just knits these things together sometimes just blows me away. The way that, that he knows our, our needs way better than we could ever possibly know ourselves. I've, I've been a Christian for a while now, um, probably not as long as some of you guys in the room, but I've been a Christian for a while. And and I found that I have this memory problem, this, this tendency to forget and to lose sight of just how good the good news is. 
And I, I just get going through the day-to-day, and I, and I lose sight of the greatness and the complexity and the power and the love and the mercy and the wisdom of our God. And we get to commune with this God and call him Father. That's good news. I think it's time that we get into what we're going to talk about today, and that is mercy. And we love to say the word mercy. Um, I told my wife I wasn't going to say this, but I, I just can't not do it now. Uh, I, every time I hear the word, I've been, you know, been hearing mercy in my head over and over this week, and all I can think of is the song, uh, what is it, Pretty Woman? Uh, where he says, it's from the movie Dumb and Dumber, and he, he just says, mercy. And, and I, for some reason, that sticks in my head all the time. So that was a free one for you. Uh, <laughs> we love to say the word in church, and we love to read about it in, in Scripture, but mercy is weird in, when it comes to, to real life and, and our culture because it is this thing that everybody wants to receive it, Right? but nobody wants to give it. Nobody's really interested in, in freely giving this thing out. We, and the reason for that is that we love justice, right? We love seeing people get what they deserve. We've all been in this situation. Picture this for a moment. You're driving down the highway, and somebody flies by you, right? What is the collective reaction of anybody that's ever been passed, ever, what a maniac. Why are they driving so fast? I'm already going five over. Why, you know, why do they need to be, be going faster than that? They're going to cause an accident. And, and so all these things. And, and so a few minutes go by, right? And, and what happens? You see those beautiful red and blue flashing lights up ahead, right? And, and all of a sudden your heart just flutters a little bit. You're like, no, could it be? No, it's too good to be true. Oh, but there it is. There it is. There it is. The very car that passed you minutes ago has one of our highway patrolmen's finest parked right behind him, and, and you just can't help yourself. You pump your fist. You high-five everybody in the car. And you're like, yes, they got what they deserved. Justice is sweet. But it changes when you're the person in the car, Right? Doesn't it? It changes when it's, when it's me or it's you, and that situation is flipped, and it was you or me that was going to be late for that appointment or work or school or whatever the situation may be. Justice doesn't seem as sweet anymore. This actually, this actually happened to me, this situation. I was, this was, had to have been four or five years ago. I'm driving down the highway, and I'm going like 60 miles an hour, I'm slightly over the speed limit. That's kind of how I justify things. I'm only a little bit over the speed limit. And, and this red pickup passes me like I'm standing still. And, and immediately, it's like I aged 60 years, and I just get all crotchety, and I'm just like, ah, I, I hope they get pulled over, and, and they're going to cause an accident. And if they do, then it serves them right. And I say all these horrible things that I, that I should not think or say. And, and lo and behold, a couple of minutes go by, and I see those lights, and I see that truck pulled over, and, and I get that elation building up inside of me, and because I, I, you know, I see it, and I'm, and I'm thinking, yes, he's getting what he deserved. Uh, what I didn't notice was that the police car had not pulled over the truck 
they had both raced there because there had been two other vehicles in an accident, and the driver, the maniac driver, was a family member of one of the people that was in the accident. And, and so, like, he was simply doing what anybody in that situation would do when they found out that their loved one could be hurt. And, and so then I'm sitting here all self-righteous and writing stories in my head about what's going on. Once I realized what happened, I'm like, I realized, I'm like, oh man, I felt really bad and I'm like, man, I'm a jerk. But here's the thing, regardless of how that situation had turned out, regardless of that, the outcome there, whether they had been pulled over the fifth time that week be, and they got their license taken away or, or the brakes broke and, the, and they couldn't slow down, you know, no matter how it worked out, regardless of the reason for it or the outcome, my reaction to that man passing me was wrong and it was sinful. And, and that moment revealed to me the ugliness of my unmerciful, self-righteous heart. It revealed to me that I hate mercy unless I'm the one that needs it. So like I said, mercy is a weird thing. And it's, and it's not necessarily a new trend. If we, if we look back in history at the height of the Roman Empire, which it's, it was at the height of its power from roughly... 27 BC to AD 476, according to my research. And mercy wasn't just this weird thing during this time. It was detestable. You see, among the Romans, mercy was considered weakness. It was a supreme sign of weakness because mercy was a sign that you did not have what it takes to be a real man, let alone a Roman. And so Romans, they glorified manly courage and strict justice and absolute power and firm discipline. And so mercy was weakness, and weakness was despised above all other human limitations. And so to give a little more context, uh, under the majority of Roman rule, there was this thing called patria potestas, which translated means power of a father. And, and this patria potestas gave the father in any family power, legal power over his descendants and all of their belongings, anything like that. And, and so it also uh, extended up to uh, capital punishment. And so, so the, the, the father had the power of life and death over anybody uh, under his under his power, which included his descendants, his wife, his slaves, you know, whatever it may be. And, and uh, so Israel is under this Roman rule because uh, at this moment in time, Rome controls basically almost every portion of land that touches the Mediterranean Sea. So we've got the southernmost tip of Spain all the way around to the northernmost tip of Africa. And they kind of almost meet right there at the Strait of Gibraltar, if you know your geography. And, uh, and so this included much of Israel. And however, Rome wasn't the only influence and authority in this region at the time. They also had the religious leaders of the day, known as the Sanhedrin. And they ruled over the religious matters. And, and the Sanhedrin were in many ways just as merciless as the Romans because 
Mercy is not a characteristic of those who are proud and self-righteous and judgmental. And if there were three words to describe the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, it would have been proud, self-righteous, and judgmental. And so people who carry those characteristics don't bother to help anybody in any situation unless there is something to be gained for themselves in it. And so in one hand, we have totalitarian Rome, and in the other hand, we have uh, intolerant Judaism. This was not a society noted for its love of mercy. As it was uh, put in a commentary that I was reading uh, this week over the book of Matthew, it says, a society that despises mercy is a society that glorifies brutality. And, and it is in this type of society that Jesus is speaking and delivering what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And, and yet Jesus is telling us that happy and fortunate are those that show mercy in this merciless world. He is, in essence, drawing a line in the sand that says, what you see in this world is not God's way. If you are my follower, we operate in a different way. God wants to bring us into a new kingdom, one of love and of grace and mercy. So what is mercy? Well, Jesus demonstrates mercy in, in a lot of ways throughout the Gospels, and, and, he, and he teaches about it in many of the parables throughout the, the Gospel accounts. And, and the one that we're going to focus in on today is the parable of the unforgiving servant, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, now, you might think, Caleb, I thought you said we were going to talk about mercy, not forgiveness. And you would be right, and I'm so glad you brought it up. Because mercy is, as I've said numerous times already, it's a weird thing. Uh, and I think it can be better understood by comparing and contrasting it with some other closely related words. And so we're going to have a little bit of a visual time here. Um, and, and so mercy and forgiveness are two different things. And so we're going to do uh, some word association. So we've got forgiveness. I'll try to spell it right because I didn't this morning. All right, we got forgiveness, and we've got mercy. We have love, and we have grace. All right, so uh, they are mercy and forgiveness. They are closely related, but different. You see, forgiveness is limited in ways that, that mercy is not. Forgiveness uh, you can only act out forgiveness if there has been a wrong committed against you, right? We can, we can only have uh, forgiveness if someone has wronged us, whereas mercy, we can have mercy on anybody who is in need, whether or not they have for, uh, wronged us or not. And so forgiveness kind of flows out of mercy. And now let's take mercy and love. Well, if forgiveness flows out of mercy, then mercy flows out of love. You see, uh, love is greater than mercy because love loves even when there is no wrong to forgive or need to meet. Love acts out of affection whether there is need or not. Tracking with me? 
We know Moss. We got one more. Uh, so mercy and grace. Grace, uh, mercy is related to grace in the way that it also flows out of love, but it is different in the way that we experience it. You see, uh, mercy deals with the symptoms of sin, the the symptoms of the or the, the kind of the needs that are produced by a broken and sinful world, whereas grace deals with the sin itself. Mercy relates to the negative, whereas grace relates to the positive. Mercy would say, no hell. Grace says heaven. I thought that was really helpful for me. And I think that's a beautiful picture. Not my handwriting, of course, but um, the concept. See, the the word mercy in the Greek that, that is used here in the scripture is, is called is, is eleemon, um, and it was dis- used to describe someone who was full of pity, who was compassionate, who was act, someone who was acting consistently with the revelation of God's covenant. I love that last one. Act, one acting consistently with the revelation of God's covenant. Because being merciful isn't just sympathizing with someone. It isn't just feeling bad for them. It is, it is compassion that drives you into action. So as I stated earlier, we don't have a natural bend towards mercy. And we often don't even think about it until it is us or someone whom we love that is in need of it. It's not a natural attribute of mankind. We can perform merciful acts, surely. But even those are often done out of selfish desires to satisfy selfish needs or desires in our hearts to appear good or generous. Or, or maybe we do them out of a sense of duty. See, I can say with the utmost confidence that apart from Christ, I am the most selfish sinful, deceitful, lost person you'd ever meet. And it is only because of his love and his grace and his mercy that is new for me every day that I can choose to follow him. And it is only because he first loved me and showed mercy on me that I have the ability to offer that to anybody else. The fact of the matter is that we can only be merciful in its fullest sense and with a righteous motive when we have first experienced and understood God's mercy on us. It is a gift that comes through salvation and the maturity of faith. And with that gift of mercy comes the expectation that we too should be givers of mercy. Luke chapter 6, verses 36 says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's dive into our parable for this morning. This is Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, the one was brought to him who owed him 
10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused, and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We have a tendency to look at the unforgiving servant in the story and think, wow, this dude is not a good dude. How could he turn around after he had been forgiven so much and be so cruel to his fellow servant? Before you judge him too harshly, let me ask you this. Who do you think represents us in this story? I'll give you a clue. It's not the good master. We are that unforgiving servant. This parable reveals to us our sinful, unmerciful nature. And we have a good and kind master who forgave us a debt that was frankly obscene in its vastness. A debt that was for all intents and purposes unpayable. It was an inescapable, crushing weight that could only be removed through mercy and forgiveness. And there's us. That inescapable, crushing weight of sin with the guaranteed punishment of eternity before us, pressing down on us, was removed because of God's great mercy and put on the shoulders of Christ. And we were freed. We're free. But what do we so often do with that freedom? We laugh and we pump our fists when people get what they deserve. We might, we might give of ourselves, but but often with the expectation of returned favors, we refuse to extend mercy. Or if we do show mercy, we are frustrated when it goes unacknowledged or or unreciprocated. We pass judgment. We're impatient. We keep meticulous mental records of past wrongs. In short, we act exactly like the unforgiving servant. We reveal our immaturity of faith. And so, the good and merciful master sees what the unforgiving servant does when he has the opportunity to reflect the mercy that was shown to him. He's angered. And so he places the debt back upon him until he could pay back all that he owed. 
And he asked, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? We must become generous givers of mercy. Not because of what, we'll, what it will gain us, but because of what we have already gained in Christ. We must recognize, we must know our rightful position before God. That is poverty of spirit. And we must feel the weight of our sin against him and mourn. And we must accept that we do not have the ability to direct our lives wisely and so become meek, allowing God to guide us in his paths of righteousness. It is those things that produce mercy in us. Jesus says that happy and fortunate are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But as we see in the parable that we just read, the opposite of that is true as well. James 2.13 says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Am I saying that our, our salvation will be rescinded? No, mercy is not salvation. But it is, as I said a short while ago, a sign of maturity of faith, and it is a gift that comes through salvation. Scripture clearly states that if we are not givers of mercy here on earth, God will not extend mercy to us. Now, this might ruffle our feathers a little bit because we don't like the idea or the thought of a God who isn't always happy and pleased and smiling down on us. But there's really no gray area here. We see how this is supposed to work in the life of King David. King David was, was a man who made many mistakes, and yet God himself called David a man after his own heart. Why was this? I, I believe that in part it was because David was a man of mercy. When David was being hunted by King Saul, he had multiple opportunities to end Saul's life and take over his kingdom. After all, David was the anointed rightful king. But instead, David offered mercy and said he would not kill Saul, who was also God's anointed. And when David's own son, Absalom, staged a coup, took over the kingdom and kicked David out, there eventually came a battle where David's victory was almost assured and, and Absalom's capture was inevitable. And it is in this moment, before this happens, that he asks that Absalom be treated gently and not killed. Now, that did not go according to David's wishes, but we see David's heart all the same. And when David was fleeing Israel because of Absalom's rebellion, there's a man named Shimei who cursed him and said all sorts of horrible things against him, threw rocks at him, and basically did everything he could to shred any dignity the dethroned king still held. And yet, when David is restored as king, he offers mercy. And he says, and he assures Shimei that he will not be punished for the things that he said and did. For all his faults, David was a merciful man. And so when he did screw up, God dealt mercifully with him. So as we 
discussed earlier, mercy is compassion that drives you to action. And so we see that, that mercy is, is kind of innately practical. And this is something that is, is quite simple, albeit difficult to practice when we don't possess the roots and the shoots required. It's simple. I mean, mercy is, is being patient with people's quirks. It is, it is helping anyone who's hurting. It is giving people another chance. It's forgiving and doing good to those who hurt you. It is being kind to those who offend you. It is building bridges of love to difficult people. It is valuing relationships over rules. It is praying for those who aren't like you. See, there's, there's no shortage of ways to show mercy to others. All it truly takes is a sober understanding of who we are and what, we has, what has been given to us in Christ. See, the ultimate mercy has already been extended to us in the form of Christ. Let us be people who reflect that mercy to others as freely as it was given to us. We pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you're so good. We praise you today for the great mercy that you have shown us. Mercy that is undeserved, and yet it is new for us every single morning. God, if those who are here are today are anything like me, then we have short memories and we are self-righteous. Despite the, the great love and the great debt that you have, have lifted off of us. Let us be people who are awake to your presence. Let us be people who, who reflect your love and your grace and your mercy that you've shown us. Holy Spirit, be our strength and sustain us in this broken world. God, we love you. Amen.